Now, as we come to the twelfth chapter here in the Gospel of Luke, we continue on in this tremendous ministry that our Lord had, and we'll find that in this section there are some new things, and those new things are what we'd like to emphasize. Luke opens this chapter by saying, "...in the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, First of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy." Now, at this time, it was the period when his ministry peaked, that is, when the crowds were following him. And I emphasize this again because I have mentioned it again and again, that it was at this time that he was performing so many miracles, and literally there were thousands of blind who had their eyes open, thousands of lame who could walk, and thousands of the dumb who could speak. And he had healed many, in fact, multitudes of people, not just the few that are recorded here. I think all the gospel writers try to make that clear to us. And here the crowd is so tremendous, it just wasn't able to number them. And they are pushing one upon another and was dangerous to be in it. And he warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, friends, if leaven is the gospel, then why in the world would the Lord warn his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees? Well, leaven is a principle of evil, and that would be the only thing our Lord would warn them of. And the leaven of the Pharisees here was hypocrisy. And there's a great deal of leaven about today. For there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear and closet shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. And it was on this principle that both Cromwell and I think and Martin Luther based the statement that fear God and you will have no one else to fear. Cromwell was once asked the basis of his courage and fearlessness, and he said that I've learned that if you fear God, there'll be no man you'll have to fear. That is what our Lord is actually saying here. Now I want to drop down to verse 15, and it grew out of this incident of these two men that came to him. And one fellow said to him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man who made me a judge, a divider over you. Our Lord absolutely refused to sit in judgment in a case like this. I wish today that those of us who attempt to counsel might take this kind of a position. The counselors today are so quick to tell you what you should do and to judge this, that, and another thing. 
Even the Lord Jesus would not sit in judgment. Now, of course, when he came the first time, he did not come as a judge, but he came as a Savior. The next time he does come as a judge, and the fathers committed all judgment to him. But this time he wouldn't judge. But now, out of this incident, though, he made this statement and then gave a parable. And he said unto them, "'Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth.'" And that is certainly a good verse for many Christians in this age of crass materialism when it seems that things are so important today and they occupy so much of our time. Covetousness is one of the great sins of the hour that Christians commit. You see, it is a sin that when you commit it, no one knows that you do commit it. And maybe you're not conscious of it yourself. St. Francis of Assisi once said, Men have confessed to me every known sin except the sin of covetousness. And the judgment that's sometimes made of us as Americans is quite interesting. Several years ago, the Sunday Pictorial in London gave this assessment of America. And I'm quoting. It says, We owe America so much that the least we can do is to be honest. This is what we think is wrong with you. You often act as though you own the UN instead of an equal partner. You dragoon the smaller nations who are dependent on you economically. You expect others to make greater sacrifices than you are prepared to make. Your standard of living is rising with rearmament. Ours is falling. Only this year we've shared with you the world's fastest and finest jet bomber, the Canberra. How many of your secrets have you passed on to us? Now, those are criticisms that probably won't stand today. But now notice this next one. You shock us by your belief that the almighty dollar and our might alone can save the world. And I'm wondering if we haven't come to that position today. Man overcome by covetousness. Our Lord gave here, I think, a parable today for that very thing. Listen to it. He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? And notice the emphasis on I. This man had a bad case of perpendicular aetis. What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years, Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? 
so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man, see, had gathered up no treasure in heaven. Everything he'd done, he'd done to accumulate something down here. And what a sorry thing it was. This is the picture that someone else has given into this universe and why, not knowing, nor whence, like water willy-nilly flowing, and out of it as wind along the waste, I know not whither willy-nilly blowing. That's the way some people are living today. This is again expressed in this epitaph. It says, Here lies John Racket in his wooden jacket. He kept neither horses nor mules. He lived like a hog. He died like a dog and left all his money to fools. Our Lord called this man a fool. And yet, notice what kind of a man he was, apparently. He gave him this horrendous title, but to all outward appearances, he was a good man. He was a law-abiding citizen. He was a good neighbor. He was a fine family man. He was above suspicion. He was living the good life in suburbia in the best residential area of the city. He was not a wicked man, not a member of the mafia. He was not in crooked politics. He was not engaged in a shady business. He was not an alcoholic. He was not keeping a woman on the side. Why, this man seems to be all right, yet our Lord called him a fool. Why? because he gave all of his thought to this matter of selfishness, of covetousness. I had a little tea party this afternoon at three. It was very small, three guests in all, just I, myself, and me. Myself ate all the sandwiches while I drank up the tea. It was also I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me. That's the way a lot of folk live today, is it not? May I say to you, friends, that this is one of the most pungent paragraphs you'll find in the Word of God. Our Lord said about this man here, you know, this is the philosophy of the unbeliever today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And our Lord said, that's the problem. That's what makes you a fool. You're living as if this life is all, and you're living just for self. You don't know that there's something beyond death. And our Lord made that very clear in this parable. Now, notice verse 22. He said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. Now, what he's saying here is take no anxious thought for it. And why? Well, because the life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? Now, you can store up things, and you can do this, and you're supposed to do it. But the problem with this man is, was covetousness. He was just trying to get more, more, more 
And that is the curse today of godless capitalism. Have you noticed the strong judgment that's pronounced upon the rich in the last days? Go to now, ye rich, how your woe has come upon you. Riches have become a curse. And today we thought as a great nation that the almighty dollar would solve the problems of the world, and we're in the biggest mess than we've ever been in. And all we're doing is arguing about whether there should be on the almighty dollar in God we trust. Let's take it off. It's hypocrisy anyway. It's not the God we are trusting in, but that dollar. May I say to you, just to have it on a dollar means nothing at all. America needs to turn back in reality and truth and quit mouthing religion today. And let's have just a little reality in it. And then we need to search our own hearts. Are we living for this life only? Our Lord said, go look at the birds. You can learn from them. And then he says, consider the ravens. And then he says something else. If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? You see, you can uh, accumulate. Nothing wrong if you accumulate it for the right purpose. And then he says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And when I go to the Hawaiian Islands, the flower over there that I like most is the hibiscus. And I always try to direct the thinking of folk to the Creator. I wonder what God had in mind when he made the hibiscus. And just as beautiful and colorful as it can be, I wonder what God had in mind. In other words, I wonder what he's trying to tell us. He says, consider the lilies, consider all the flowers, how they grow. I think that hibiscus is saying to a lot of us today, my, you go to a lot of trouble to take care of your body. You apply lotions to it and you are using bath salts today, and you're using sprays and ointments and all kinds of articles today are being applied to the body, and then you clothe it. And even after you get all perfumed and dressed up, you're a pretty sight, aren't you? You couldn't even compare to an hibiscus. You couldn't compare to a lily. What a message, friends! Some of us need to depend on God a little bit more. If then God so clothe the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. Don't give anxious thought. Trust God. My, what a wonderful thing this is that he's saying to those that are his own. Now I want to drop down to verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, and give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. And... This, I think, is one of the greatest parables to teach folk who say today they're looking for the Lord to come, that the important thing to do 
is to be found working as if he's not going to come for another thousand years. And he may not. I don't know. I don't have the inside track that a great many seem to have today. There are those that are saying right now, he's coming before 2000. I've looked for that verse. I can't find it. I don't think, friends, they have some inside information the rest of us don't have. I think that what he's trying to tell us, let's quit all of this business of trying to set a date and get ready. But the important thing is, is to just start filling a hope chest. You know, the blessed hope is the coming of Christ, and every girl is supposed to have a hope chest, that is, when she gets married someday. And that important thing is to fill that chest with something. And I think that some of us ought to have something to lay at his feet someday. We ought to be busy for him. That is the purpose of this prayer. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he'll make him ruler over all that he hath. And if the servant says, My Lord delayeth his coming, shall begin to beat the men servants and maid servants, and to eat and drink and to be drunken. Well, of course, that servant's going to be judged. Again, the grave danger is, if you begin to set dates and expect him at a certain time, and he doesn't come, and he won't come at that time, because he said he'd come at a time you wouldn't be expecting him. And if he doesn't come, then the inclination would be to become discouraged. My friend, we're not to set a date, but we're to live in the light of it, the expectancy of it, the attitude of it. And our whole life should be lived as if the Lord, the next moment, might appear and we'd have to give an account to him. And on that basis, then it will affect our daily living. And to tell the truth, when he does come, we're going to have to give an account of today. Now, maybe he won't come today. And if he doesn't come today, somebody says, well, he didn't come today, and I did this, and I got by with it. No, you didn't. He's going to judge it in that day. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who's we? We Christians. We're to appear there. It's not a question of salvation. This is not a criminal court. This is a court, a circuit court, where our property is in danger. He's going to judge and see whether we are to receive a reward or not. And that's the thing that's important. That makes this a very important passage, by the way. And then verse 49, he makes some startling statements here. He says, I'm come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? And friends, it's still interesting, isn't it, that even at this hour, and the time of the deepest darkness that I think we've had in 1900 years in the world, that even at this hour, the Lord Jesus Christ is being blasphemed. I tell you, the fire has been thrown out on the earth today. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? And that, of course, was his death upon the cross Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. He's been a divider of men, friends. <laughs> I get a little weary of the signs going around about Jesus talked about peace. He divides men. Long as there's sin in the world, friends, 
Why, there'll be division. There can be no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. But the day's coming when he's going to bring peace, but he'll have to put down the other crowd. And he says, Suppose ye, verse 51, Suppose ye that I'm come to give peace on earth, I tell you, nay, but rather division. And friends, just because World War II is over and there is a sort of a peace in Korea and other places in the world uncertain, that doesn't mean we're going to have peace. Why, if they're not going to fight there, they're going to fight somewhere else because there's not going to be peace on the earth, friends, until he comes. It's difficult for Christians to get that in their thinking today, but it'll help us a great deal if we do. And he says, "...far from henceforth there shall be five and one house divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against his son." You see, when anyone comes to Christ, it immediately separates him from the unbelievers around him, and they may be so close to him by blood that it may be a father, may be a son, may be a sister, may be a brother, may be a wife, may be a husband. But this is what divides them. Now he says here, verse 55, "...and when ye see the south wind blow, ye say there will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. But how is it that ye do not discern this time?" And today we need to recognize the fact that we're living in this kind of a time. What a fallacy today for man to think that he is big enough and good enough to bring peace in the earth. A man is a warmonger. The very interesting thing is that the United Nations, some wag said, why it was formed to bring peace, to keep peace on earth, and it's the best fighting ring that there is in the world today, and it sure is. My friend, our Lord made it very clear, and he made it very clear that you and I are living in this kind of a world. Somebody says, I don't like to think that. You better accept it. Margaret Fuller one time made the statement, I accept London. And that old Scotch philosopher said, she better accept London. Yeah, just as it is. You have to believe this world is just the kind of world that it is. Our Lord said it would be that way as long as there's sin in the world. Now, friends, in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we have several things that are brand new. And we're coming to that section of Luke where there are many things that only Luke gives us concerning the earthly ministry of our Lord. And this first one is, I'm reading now verse 1 of Luke 13. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners, above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Are those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them? Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem, 
I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now, this is a remarkable statement our Lord has made, and it has in it several very fine lessons for us today. I think the first one is that we ought to always recognize that when some family or some person, especially a Christian, has trouble beyond the average, and many do, and especially is that true today, it's not to be interpreted that they are greater sinners than other people and that what's come upon them is not because of their sin. But also, there is another side of the coin, and that happens to be this. And will you hear this very carefully? May I say to you, because you are a Christian, you have no inoculation that you won't have trouble. That's a viewpoint a great many get today, that a Christian is one's going to miss all of the trouble down here. My friend, you'll miss the great tribulation, but the way I like to put it, you won't miss the little tribulation. You're going to have a little of it right down here. And it's no guarantee. God doesn't apologize for a trouble that comes to you. And then there's something else here. When you see trouble coming to someone else and not to you, don't get the idea that probably you're superior to that individual. But the lesson for you is that maybe God has permitted you to see this trouble in order that it might bring you to God. I know, for instance, these are normal, natural things. My wife and I were driving across the country. We were going back to Texas, and we were in a hurry. That was home to us in those days, and we really were moving on the highway. I was driving at a pretty rapid speed, by the way. And we came to where there were quite a few cars, and there was an accident there. We saw a man lying in the highway, bleeding profusely. And, you know, it had an effect on us. You know what it did? We slowed down. God permits you sometimes to see things, friends, in order not for you and me to get any idea that we're superior, but it has a lesson for it. So it may be that that brother of yours or that friend of yours that's having trouble... God's trying to tell you something through that. I'm not trying to say to you what it is, but he may be trying to tell you something. Now we have this parable of the barren fig tree, which I relate to the nation Israel, that he came and found no fruit on the tree, and he immediately pronounced a curse upon it. Well, there's a great deal of disagreement about this fig tree today, but there's no disagreement that God didn't judge the nation Israel. And you know, isn't it interesting that they can't live in that land today in peace and reject God? You know what? That ought to be a lesson to somebody today. It's not Russia that's giving them trouble, and it's not the Arabs that's giving them trouble. You know who's giving them trouble? I don't mind saying it. I think it's God. God says that there's no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. They're his chosen people. He's going to bring them back to that land someday in belief and faith. And they're back there today in unbelief. And they're just not having peace. And I think that's a evidence of the hand of God. 
in the affairs of this world. Now we have a remarkable incident given to us here, and I want to deal with it. It's here at the tenth verse of this woman that was probably one of the worst cases that we have in the Scripture. I can't think of a case worse than her case is here. And the thing that is back of it, of course, is the matter that our Lord did what he did on the Sabbath day. Let me read verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. I don't know which one it was. We're not told. That's not important. Verse 11. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years, and was bowed together, and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him, and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. Now, it's one of these cases of physical malady that Luke gives to us. And when Luke gives it to us, we really see the character of Luke as a doctor. And it's difficult for us to translate into English the terminology of Luke here, the medical terms. She had a spirit of infirmity. She had it 18 years. That means it was chronic and over a long period. And she was bowed down. That actually is a medical term, according to Weymouth. And Weymouth translates it, bent double. She could not lift up herself. And I think all of these combined to describe for us a poor creature in a desperate condition. She was a poor wretch, an object of pity. And very candidly, my feeling is that she's probably the worst case that our Lord dealt with of any physical infirmity. Now, that's not all that's said. We're told here, verse 16, "...and ought not this woman..." being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound. Lo, these eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Now, I must confess, I cannot understand that, nor can I explain it. There are many things about life we do not understand. She's not an immoral person. She was at the synagogue, a regular attendant in such a condition. She's one of the most pitiful cases which I think the evangelists called our attention. And our Lord, here the great physician, said to her that she's loosed. And my friend, you can write it down that he's responsible for every hospital that's ever been built, the Lord Jesus. They didn't have hospitals till he came along. And today... I do not care whether it's a godless doctor or a godless hospital. They owe a great deal to Jesus Christ, the great physician. Now, will you notice he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God, verse 13. You see, he placed his hands on her. Somebody says, well, was that essential? I don't think so. And you will find that that blind man of Bethsaida, why, he did the same thing. That was an aid to faith, you see, a contact with Christ. And I think that's the important thing today, a personal contact with him. Now we're told in verse 14, "...and the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day, and said unto the people, There are six days in which men 
ought to work. In them, therefore, come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Well, she didn't come there to be healed to begin with. And believe me, the reaction of this religious ruler is strange to understand. But you see, he's more interested in the rule. And notice how our Lord dealt with him, by the way. The Lord then answered him. Now, this is verse 15. Follow it carefully. And he said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound low these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond and on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. You see, the Sabbath question is the all-important question to them. Religion is not a ritual. The Sabbath day had become a burden too grievous to be borne. They had some of the most absurd rules One of them was you weren't to carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath day because, well, it meant you were carrying a burden, and you ought not to do that. And there was one exception. If you were in a walled city, why, you could carry a handkerchief. And you could put up poles and stretch a string on it, and you could carry it on that. My friend, that is the most absurd thing in the world. The Sabbath question is still the subject of heated debate today, as you know. They argue over it very zealously. And you can get some people that'll argue. Well, they'll argue they're blue in the face about the Sabbath day. And the question is not to argue religion, but learn to live it. That's the important thing. And this poor sin-sick soul, bent double with the burdens of life, Satan had bound her. She was hamstrung. And he's not going to leave her in that condition. What a tremendous thing. And the people, though, they heard him gladly, and they rejoiced in this. They heard the voice of the Lord Jesus. You know, you can become so religious and callous that you can exclude Jesus from your life. You may be an expert in argument and resting on the haunches of your smug complacency, but the question is, have you ever let Christ into your heart? And there's no substitute for that. Are you filled with doubts, puzzle, trouble? Have you bent double today with the burdens of life? Then come to Jesus. Come with your burdens. Come with your sin. Come anytime. Doesn't make any difference. You can come to him. What a wonderful lesson there is here. In the rest of this chapter, we have that which we've dealt with before. The parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven. And then in verse 22, "...and he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem." You see, he's moving now toward Jerusalem. And Dr. Lucas told us before that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And now he's still on his way, way back in the ninth chapter, in the 51st verse. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he's now on his way there, on his way to die there. And you find him weeping over Jerusalem at this time.
Now we come to an incident in the 14th chapter, and I'll get a little ways in this. And this is when Jesus went out to dinner. And friends, we've already had one instance of that where he went out to dinner. Remember that old Pharisee there when he saw that woman washing his feet? She was a prostitute. He was a Pharisee, and she was a prostitute. He was the acme of morality, and she had been in the depths of immorality. He was the product of religion, and she was the product of the underworld. And he sits, and there she stands. He was offended by her, and she's embarrassed. He'd have been shocked if she had spoken to him publicly. I've often wondered whether he'd ever done business with her. Maybe that embarrassed him a little brazen, and she has a contempt for him. He's critical, and she's crying. He feels superior, and she feels inferior. He's from the upper strater, and she's from the lower strater. He represents the best, and she represents the worst. He was famous, and she was notorious. He came from the best sections, suburbia. She came from the slums. He was a man of the boulevards, and she was a woman of the street. He was a theologian, and she was a tart. On the moral level, he's better than she is, and nobody's going to argue that that reads the story. But the Lord Jesus said in the light of heaven, this woman who had many sins, and she'd been forgiven much. When she came to the Lord Jesus, why, she'd been forgiven much. And the one forgiven much is the one that'll love him much. You know, the measure of your salvation is the measure of your sin. What you think of Christ is what you think of yourself as a sinner. If you are a little sinner, you need a little Savior. But if you see yourself as a hell-doomed sinner, then you're going to need a heaven-bound Savior. May I say it makes all the difference in the world. That's what happened when Jesus went out to dinner. And I was going out to dinner again here in the 14th chapter. And are we going to have fun? I don't know why many of you Christians today don't have fun with the Bible. It's just a great fun book, by the way. It has so much wonderful thing in it. Now, let's look at this. It came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. Now, I must confess that if I'd gone there on the Sabbath day and he'd invited me in the synagogue to come and have dinner, I'll be very frank with you, I wouldn't have gone to dinner, not with them watching me like that. And you see, that's exactly what they're doing. They are there to really spy upon him. They are there to look at him. They are there to see what he's going to do. Now, will you notice... That This verse gives us the atmosphere, the tone, and the color. It's the prelude before the dinner that produced the tenseness. Now, will you notice? And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. Now, that's a trap that was deliberately set to catch him. I believe that man was planted there. Our Lord did not fall into it or any trap set for him. And this is just one of those delightful occasions when he went out to dinner. Now, notice what he does. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. You see, they're afraid to say anything. And he took him and healed him and let him go and answered them. 
saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And there wasn't a one of those rascals there that if his car had a flat on the Sabbath day Saturday, he'd have fixed it. <laughs> Our Lord said, Of course you will. And he says, That's the reason I'm fixing up this fellow here, too, because he needs it. And you can do it on the Sabbath day. They could not answer him again to these things. You see, this is a rather tense situation for the dinner now. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, or the wedding feast it is, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And friends, this is as rich as it can be. You see, in that day, they didn't have place cards. I think place cards originated by some hostess who wanted to preserve her furniture, because if you don't put the place cards around, there'll be a mad rush to get the best places at the table. And so this is an occasion where there were no place cards. And each one of these rascals that was there He'd criticize the Lord Jesus, but every one of them made a dive for the most important place. Now, at the table in that day, there were four places that were the chief places. And there was number one, number two, number three, and number four. Number one was superior to number four. They all wanted to get to number one, but they couldn't quite make it. So there was just a mad scramble. Well, that made it rather tense when the cook came in and said, Soup's on, and there was a beeline made for the table. And I hope I can diagram this for you by words today. But the table in that day was a table where you reclined. And there were three places to recline on a side. If there were just four sides, then you would be able to get at the table, you see, 12 people. And if there were more guests, then you could just put in another three and expand the table like that. It wouldn't be putting leaves in the table as we do today, but in that day they reclined. Well, a table like that, the way that they did it was that the number two seat, or the center seat, was the seat of honor. In other words, there'd be one, two, three on one side, and that'd be at the head of the table. Seat number two is the seat of honor. And then around on the other side, it would be four, five, six. And number five would be the seat of honor there. And you go on around and put down three more, and number eight would be the seat of honor. Then you go on around to the fourth side, and number 11 would be the seat of honor. Well, you could well understand that one of these old Pharisees maybe couldn't move very fast, but he got there closest to the dining room. And when it was announced, soup's on, he made a dive for it. But some of the younger Pharisees got there before he did and got number two. So he turned the corner fast and tried to get to number five. But when he got there, there was somebody there. And so we tried for number eight, and he didn't make that. And finally, he turned the corner, and he got on number 11. And that was the lowest seat, but it was a seat of honor. And he sat there breathlessly. You can imagine what a terrible thing it was when you'd see people making a run for the seats of honor. Now, our Lord said here, verse 8, "...when thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, 
lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. And when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. Now, the Lord Jesus said this. He said, when you're invited to a dinner, don't get that seat of honor. Don't take that. Because if you do get it, why, the host may have somebody else in mind, may come to you and give you the thumb, you know, and say, up, brother, you go down there to the lowest seat. And you get up, and actually to get to the lowest, you just have to shift over one, you see, and you take the lowest place. And that would be embarrassing to you. And the man of honor would be there, and he'd take the place of honor. He said, when you're invited, don't do that. Always go to that lowest one. You try to get the lowest one, you won't have any problem getting it, because nobody else will be trying for it. Then you sit there, and then the host comes in and sees you. And he says, oh, you were to be my guest of honor. And he comes and says to you, come up higher. Now, our Lord says, that's the way you're to do that's just good manners, is it not? And that's all in the world our Lord was doing at this particular time. Now will you notice verse 12, "...then said he also to him that bade him, when thou makest the dinner..." Well, I should read verse 11. I pass that over. "...for whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted." That's the great principle our Lord draws from this. If you exalt yourself, you'll be abased. If you abase yourself, you'll be exalted. That's a great principle for a believer. Then said he also to him that bade him. Now he's going to correct the host. When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Now, here is a great principle also. You know, most of us today, we have the same crowd in for dinner. And then next week, they have us over for dinner. And then the next week, the other guests that you'd had in, they have you over for dinner. And it's sort of a round-robin situation. That's the way that it's done, is it not, today? And our Lord's condemning that. It's all right for you to have your group in. But have you ever thought about maybe doing something for those that have not? They can't recompense you. They won't be able to invite you back for dinner the next week. Always invite somebody at every dinner that you know that will not or cannot invite you for dinner. I think that's the reason... Maybe some people invite the preacher. They know that we can't maybe return the invitation. So they do that. And that's nice. I always have appreciated it. But this is a great principle he puts down. Now you can imagine the tenseness at this dinner. It started off by him taking that man with the dropsy, healing him, and then just looking at the guests right straight in the eye and condemning them. And then he corrected the guests, corrected their manners. And now he corrects the host. And believe me, by that time, why, things are a little tense there. And what happens? Well, nobody's saying a word. 
And I read verse 15. And friends, don't miss this one. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And there is without doubt one of these pious platitudes that this man gives. One of the old rascals that was there, and he probably got one of the places of honor. And in that silent moment, it's an awkward moment, it's an embarrassing moment, this old brother, he speaks out. Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. I wish I'd have been there. I'd like to have asked him, what do you mean by that? And I'd like to have that explained to me. I've never found a commentator yet that could explain what he meant. Blessed is he that eateth bread in the kingdom of God. That's nothing in the world but a pious cliché. That's nothing in the world but a statement made by someone. And there are a lot of pious platitudes that you hear today in our conservative circles. I get so tired of them. Praise the Lord is one of them. It's a wonderful thing to praise the Lord, but sometimes it becomes a little boring when a person constantly uses that and doesn't praise the Lord. The important thing seems to me is let's steer clear of pious cliches. They are pretty well in use today, and they've been shop-worn, out-worn, and we should, I think, drop many of them. Well, you think the Lord Jesus is going to let this fellow get by with that? Our Lord turned on him, and I think his eyes flashed with anger. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper, and bad many. He says, You say, Blessed is he that eateth bread in the kingdom of God, you rascal, you, I want to tell you what men have done with God's invitation for salvation. He says, A certain man made a great supper and bad many. And that's the Lord. Will you notice this? And he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. Now, this is what men are going to do with the invitation. The invitation for salvation has gone out. What will man do with it? God has sent out this invitation, and this is what men are going to do with it. God's dinner is an invitation affair. You're not going to buy your way in. You're going to get in there by the grace of God if you get in. By grace are we saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. That is, you get into this dinner by receiving a gift. You couldn't buy an invitation to a dinner at the White House. And there are those in Washington that would like to buy it, and in the country, I suppose. But the only right to enter is the right of invitation. You can't shove your way in or stiff-arm your way in. Come, for all things are now ready. And what is it would exclude them? The only thing that will exclude any human being today from heaven is a refusal to accept the invitation. The Lord Jesus said, "'You say, Blessed is he that eateth bread in the kingdom.'" That's pious nonsense to talk like that. Here's what men are doing with God's invitation. All right, what did they do? Verse 18, "...and they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused." Now, someone has said, I think I can quote it, that an excuse or an alibi is what this is. An alibi is a lie that is in the thin skin 
of an excuse. It's not a reason. And not a one of them said, I will not come. They didn't have a good excuse at all. I heard about a teacher once said to a little boy that was absent from school one day, said, did you bring an excuse? And he said, no. And she said, well, you go home and get a written excuse. And he came back with, I think, the best excuse that I've ever heard. The mother wrote down, said, the snow was 17 inches deep. Willie's legs are 16 inches long. (laughs) He couldn't make it. May I say to you, an excuse, though, is given to cover up something else. Now, notice what this first one did. He says, I bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. Now, that man's a liar or a fool. I don't know which one he is, but he's one or the other. Can you imagine a man buying property, and this man didn't even go look at it before? I never knew a man to get rich and at the same time get closer to God. I don't know why that's true, but I've lost quite a few members that got rich down through the years. I made the statement some time ago that I never knew a wealthy church that has a gospel ministry. I know a certain man that is making, I suppose he makes some days $500 a day. May I say to you, he at one time was very active for the Lord, but he's sure not today. This man says, I bought some property, and I've got to go take a look at it. And I think he's either a liar or a fool. And then notice the second one. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. Now, the other man let possessions keep him away. This man let business, commerce keep him away. And again, I have to say that he's a liar or a fool. You never look a gift horse in the mouth is an ancient aphorism, but There's also another one that's called caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. And you don't plow at night to begin with. This man says, i got to go try out the oxen. Well, it's night. That day they didn't have a flashlight. They didn't have a searchlight. And he says, I must take care of my business. And I hear that today. I must make a living. Well, my friend, one day you're going to have to die. And the thing is that you're going to find out that that day business will go on as usual without you. I had a member of my church that he was a doctor. My, he had his little clinic filled with sick people Sunday morning. Looked like every Sunday morning that clinic would fill up. I don't know why it did, but it sure did. But when his alma mater played football in Saskatchewan or Timbuktu, he managed to go there, and I guess a lot of people just didn't get sick at that time. They learned that when his alma mater played football, it just didn't pay to get sick at all. Then we have another one here. Another one said, verse 20, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. You know, in Israel, there was a law that a man was excused from going to war when he had taken a new wife. And we always find at wartime there's increase in marriages and the birth of children. I'm not drawing any inference from that and just saying that happens to be a fact. But this man, I think, had the weakest excuse of all. 
Why didn't he just bring her and come on to the dinner? You'd get a good dinner. Natural affection is what our Lord's talking about. These are the three things that are keeping more people from God than anything else. Possessions, business, and natural affection. How many today are being kept away because of a father or a mother that is not interested in the things of God? Somebody says, well, you know, Brother McGee, that I have only one Sunday with my family, and I want to spend it with them. Believe me, that keeps a lot of people from coming. Now, all these were excuses, and you can classify every excuse under one of these heads. I do not believe that I've ever heard a legitimate excuse. Men make excuses because the real reason was they did not want to come. What this first man should have said, excuse me from looking at the land. I can't do it today. I've got to go to church. The second man should have said, I can't look at these oxen. I've got a dinner engagement. And the third one said, wife, come on. I've got a wonderful invitation. I want you to share in it. And by the way, you've got an invitation, friend. I Forgot to tell you about it, but I better tell you about it now. And that invitation's an engraved invitation. It's written in the blood of Christ, and it's to come to the great table of salvation. And by the way, if you reject God's invitation, he has to reject you. Listen to verse 24. For I say unto you that none of these men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. That's a severe thing, is it not? Now we have here, again, verse 25, "...and there went great multitudes with him." I've mentioned that before. "...and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father..." In other words, it's to put him first. All terms which define the emotions or affections are always comparative. And the believer's devotedness to Christ should be such that it looked like everything else would be hate. This is what he's saying here. Then he tells about the tower, verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest happily after he hath laid the foundation is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish May I say to you, you ought to make a decision for Christ, but you ought to think it over, friends. Now you have the parable of the king who's getting ready to go to war. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand, or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an embassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you can be saved by just accepting Christ, but my friend, you'll never follow him, and you'll never serve him until you're willing to make a sacrifice. That's the thing that he's saying here. There's a difference in being a disciple and being a believer. A believer should be a disciple, but unfortunately, they all are not. Now we come to the so-called parable of the prodigal son. And we'll see in a moment why we say so-called. 
the background was that the publican sinners came in to hear him by the multitudes. And the Pharisees and scribes began to murmur, why, they say, this man will receive sinners, and he eateth with them. And he did that, by the way. I can't resist telling the little story about the girl from the slums of London. One night, she slipped into a church, and she heard the pastor read this verse here. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. And she came up afterward and said to the pastor, she said, I didn't know that my name was in the Bible and that God mentioned me. And he looked at her, she's just like a little waif in rags, and he said, Why, young lady, I don't think you're mentioned in the Bible. Oh, yes, said, you read about me. And he said, Where? Why, you read where it says that this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them, and my name is Edith. May I say to you, that's one way, but certainly he would receive Edith also. And he'll receive Mary and John and all the rest of us. Thank God for that. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now we come to these parables that he gave in answer to the murmuring of the Pharisees and scribes because he was receiving publicans and sinners. And he spake this parable unto them. Now, this parable is actually in three parts. We call it the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. But actually, it's just one parable. When I was a boy, I used to go visit my aunt, especially at Christmas time. And there'd be other visitors there, and they always put me up in the loft, you know, up where she had everything stored. And they put me a bed down up there. And at Christmas time, that always was a very wonderful place for me. The chimney came up through there. It was warm. But going up the steps, there was a picture there that she apparently had had in the old days, but had removed it. And it was what is known as a triptych. Any of you older folk remember triptychs? Well, a triptych is a one frame, but three pictures in it. And this one was of the prodigal son. It showed first the prodigal son in the middle as he came home. That's the great thing. One on the other side shows him going away and having a high old time. And the one on the other side showed him down in the pig pen. The center one, though, showed him going home. It told the story. Well, what you have in the three parables here, so-called, is one parable, but it's like a triptych. There are three pictures that give the message. Now, let me read the first one. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you have a hundred sheep? If he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find him. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Now, what you have here is, first of all, a picture of a lost sheep. And the shepherd here is the one we think of as being the great shepherd. He's the shepherd of the sheep. We are his sheep. 
And here this shepherd had a hundred sheep. One of them got lost. Now, that, frankly, would be a pretty good percentage if you started out with a hundred sheep and you came through with ninety-nine. But this shepherd wouldn't be satisfied with just ninety-nine. When this one sheep got lost, he went out and looked for it. And you notice what he did? He put it on his shoulder. He's able to save to the uttermost. And he'll go out after it and put it on his shoulder. And you know, the children of Israel, their high priest, had on the garment, one of the garments that he wore, a garment that had two stones, one on one shoulder and one on the other. He carried the children of Israel on his shoulders because there were six names on one shoulder and six on the other. And our great high priest, he carries us on his shoulder. We won't get lost. When he starts out with 100 sheep, he always comes through with 100 sheep. And as far as I'm concerned, that's all predestination ever did mean. It just means when this shepherd starts out with 100 sheep, why, he always comes through with 100 sheep and not 99 sheep and one goat. It's always a hundred sheep. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ going out looking for those that are his own. Now you have the parable of the lost coin, so-called. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, she's married, of course, and this was her wedding ring. If she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it. This speaks of the Holy Spirit. I tell you, his ministry is to make sure that every one that belongs to the bridegroom is going to be there. Every coin will be there. Everyone's valuable to him. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, There's joy in the presence of angels, of God over one sinner that repented. What a picture that you have here, you see. Now, we come to the third one. He said, a certain man had two sons. That certain man is God the Father. It's a glorious, wonderful picture. Actually, this is not a parable of a prodigal son. It's about a very good father who had two sons. Both of them are prodigals, to tell the truth. We'll see that about the older son in a few moments. And this father did not force the boy to do anything against his will. He was really indulgent with the boy. Notice this. And the younger of them said to his father, notice this, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divideth unto them his living. This is the picture that you have here. Divideth unto them his living. And now notice... And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. You see, the father didn't force the boy to stay home against his will. And you can walk right away from God if you want to. That's your business. Have you ever noticed that that rich young ruler that came to the Lord Jesus, our Lord, when he left him, and yet it says our Lord loved him. Why? I'm sure that a great many people would say today, well, let's sing 15 more stanzas and see if the boy won't come forward. Well, that's not the way our Lord does it. You can go away from God if you want to. He wasn't forced. You know, this boy now, he wants to leave home. 
and he's guilty of what Dr. Streeter calls the sin of propinquity. And that sin of propinquity means that things near at hand are wrong and things that are far away are the good things. The faraway places are wonderful, but the old hometown doesn't look good. You know, the chief allurement of sin is its mystery. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And there are a lot of people out here in California. They came out here because they thought the grass was greener, and they found out the smog and the traffic both are thicker here also, and things grow here. Sure they do. And so does smog and traffic. And the prodigal, of course, he got the tourist maps and all the folders, and he went around to the travel agencies. So he went away to a far country. And all we're told here about the poor boy is, well, let me just read that again. He took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. He spent a lot of time in the far country. But the Lord doesn't talk about that. There's a movie made of the prodigal son, and about all the movie was about was the time he had in the far country with his drinking and carousing around. Our Lord didn't dwell on that, you see. What happened? Well, when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. You see, trouble came to the boy in the far country. There's no more nickels now to put in the jute box, and his fair-weather friends have faded away. They're all gone. Inflation has come, and his money has already gone anyway, and there'll be no more trips to Palm Springs and Las Vegas. You see, trouble always comes to the prodigal in the far country. The prodigal always gets his whipping in the far country, never gets it when he comes home. When he comes home, he'll be a glorious reception for him there, but, oh boy, does he get a whipping in the far country. And that's what happened to this boy. He got in a lot of trouble there. And notice what happened. We're told here, now read this, and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And when he got at that point, the publicans and Pharisees both winced when Jesus said that because the Jewish boy could have sunk no lower than to feed swine. And the publicans, they did a little more wincing than the Pharisees because they knew what he was talking about. Well, he hits bottom. He would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Well, he's hit bottom. I guess it's drugs and sex now for him, and he's gone as far down as you can go. Even in the pig pen, though, he's a son, and I'd have you note that. As a boy, I went forward when an evangelist preached a sermon, a gospel sermon on the prodigal son. And don't tell me now that you can't preach a gospel sermon on the prodigal son. You can. But frankly, friends, this is not the story about how a sinner comes to Christ and gets saved. For the very simple reason, there's nothing in here about repentance, and there's nothing in here about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The thing is that this boy was always a son. Never any question about that. He was a son when he was at home. He was a son when he left home. He was a son when he was spending his father's money. 
He was a son when he went and joined himself to that man in the far country. And he was a son when he got on that pig pen. Years ago, someone asked the late Dr. Harry Rimmer, they said to him, suppose the boy died in a pig pen, what then? Dr. Rimmer said he never would have been a pig. He was always a son, always a son. You see, there he is in the far country. And in the far country, that's where you really get in trouble, always get in trouble there. In the Reader's Digest many years ago, there was an article about, I like pigs. And I wondered about it. I thought the prodigal son had written it, but it was written by a lady. She insisted that the pig is the most malign animal, that he's actually not dirty, he's really tidy. He's not a glutton, but he really would like to go on a diet. I'm afraid this lady wasn't quite the authority on pigs that the prodigal son was. He lived with him. And he found out that, you know, down there in that pig pen, oh, it was dirty and filthy. And he didn't like it down there. And you know the reason? Because he was a son of the father. You know, pigs are the only ones like pig pens. Sons just don't like pig pens. And they're not going to stay down there. And we read verse 17, And when he came to himself, and the preacher years ago in the country said the best place in the world for a man to come is to come to himself. Well, this fellow, he came to himself and said, How many hired servants of my father's? You see, he was a son of the father. Down there in the pig pen, he could call him my father. And they have bread enough in despair, and I perish with hunger. I will arise, and I'll go to my father. No pig ever said that, friends. And I'll say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. You see, he wasn't a servant. He was a son. All the way long, he was a son. And he said, I'm going to rise, and I'm going to go to my father. I don't like it down here in the pig pen. The thing is that the pig pen's a place for pigs. It's not a place for sons. And so he decided he'd going to go home. We come now to the thrilling part of the story. What will the father do with this boy? Now, back according to the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, the father could have had this boy stoned to death. What did he do? Will you listen to this now? And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and said to a servant, Run, get my switch, those hickory limbs I've got, and I'm going to beat that boy in an inch of his life, because he's disgraced my name and he's spent my substance. Is that the way your Bible reads? Well, if you're following me in the Bible, you know it doesn't read like that. When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You see, that's the way the Bible reads. It's a different story you see here. And notice what the boy, though, did. The son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven in thy sight, no more worthy to be called thy son. But what the father do? The father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Friends, that's a very wonderful thing. 
fact of the matter is, what we have here is this boy in a far country, he knew what misery was. Now in the father's house, they began to be merry. And as the late Dr. George Gill used to put it, he says, they began to be merry. And it never says they ever ended. It just kept on getting better and better. You know, when you're in the will of God and walking with Him, you have the best time you've ever had. Christian friend, you'll never have fun in the far country. And then in the far country, there were tears of trouble. Now there are tears of sheer delight. He got kicks in the far country. Now he gets kisses. It was rags in the far country and a robe when he got home. He had a ring under his eyes in the far country. Now there's a ring for his fingers. And he had swill and slime to eat. Now there's shoes for his feet. There was fasting when he was in the far country. Now there's feasting. He was a beggar over there. Now he's at a banquet. There was nothing in the world but the jukebox over there. Now there's joy. There was nothing there but fragments in the far country. Now it's the fatted calf. And we're told, draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. The very wonderful thing here is that you have this story of the prodigal son. May I say to you, my friend, there is this man that got away from God, and he came back to God, and he came back by confession. The father didn't even let this boy finish his confession, brought him right back in. This is the way that a child of God that sins, the way he can get back to God. There's another prodigal son. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and draw nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brothers come. Thy father killed a fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. And listen to this boy. Boy, what a complainer he is. What a griper he is. And this is the other prodigal son. And I mean, he's a real prodigal son. Notice this. He was angry, first of all. He would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him, and he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I in any thy commandments, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. There are a lot of poor Christians today. They're not in the far country. You know, they're trying to live for God, but they're as poor as Job's turkey. And you know why? It's because they're blessed with spiritual blessings, but they don't lay hold of them. God says, it's all yours. I tell you, my father's rich in all spiritual possessions. Now he said unto him, Son, thou art with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead, and he's alive again. He's lost, and he's found. And so he had to get this boy back. But the way it closes, the boy didn't get back. I don't know whether he got back in fellowship or not, but he could come back in fellowship. But years ago, Dr. Chadwick said there's a third son in the parable of the prodigal son. You see, the younger son broke the father's heart, and the elder son was out of fellowship and without sympathy. But who's the third son? Well, the man who uttered the parable, God's son. He's his ideal son, without sin. 
He came to a far country, not to run away, but to do the will of the Father. Not in riotous living, but in sacrificial dying. Not as a prodigal, but as the prince of peace, to shed his blood for the sins of the world. Not a wayward son, but a willing sacrifice. And he came to do the Father's will. And he says, "...to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more nor less than just simply believe in his name." 